for a presenter of the final award, we've stepped outside the industry. We've remained true to Los Angeles, however. I'd call him the town's most distinguished son. He achieved the miracle of peace in Palestine. He won the Nobel Prize. He is now one of the large figures in the United Nations organization. It is an honor for all of us to hear from Dr. Ralph Bunch. Mr. Astaire, members of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen, it seems to me that there is little, if anything, more that needs to be said tonight. This brilliant occasion speaks impressively for itself, and no words of mine can add any luster to it. The run for the Oscars is a memorable experience, and I am greatly privileged to be here tonight. Honorable peace can be achieved and secured, and brotherhood can be made to have everyday meaning in the lives of all men. And now, to the business at hand. May I have the envelope, please? I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Ambitious young Eve Harrington is waiting at the stage door to meet her idol, brilliant but slightly aging Broadway star Margot Channing. Eve explains she has seen Margot in every performance of her play. Flattered, Eve takes her under her wing. While only the theatre critic Addison DeWitt sees through Eve's evil plan, which is to take over Margot's parts and her fiancé, Bill, too. Ciao, my people, and welcome to our 23rd episode of Gold Standard, the Oscars movie podcast, where we travel through time, reviewing the films that earned their gold statue or standard, if you will. I'm one of your co-hosts, DJ Nick, and as always, joining me at the Gold Standard Theatre are my two podcasting partners in crime. On one side, the lady who would fit right into a Milanese happy hour with cocktails and arepas, Rachel Friend. Hey, Rachel, how are you today? I am good. Awesome. And on the other, the lady who will soon be opening her own Pez Museum as she's close to owning almost 3,000 Pez dispensers, Zan Sprouse. Hey, Zan, how are you? I'm good. And I would just like to go on record as saying that I'm well aware that that is an, an intermediate level collection. <laughs> you know, I'm well, still, there, are, there are some Pez collectors that just look at me and say, oh, you're such an amateur. Wow. Okay. <laughs> but still, it's, it's a very, very lofty, very high number there that you already have. So it's, uh, that's fantastic. And so, I'm, doing, I'm doing my best. And it's, you know, it's free with a suggested donation of, uh, I don't know, cat scritches for my cats. <laughs> anybody that wants to come over and take, take a look, they're welcome to. Oh, well, definitely. I'd, I'd love to see that because, I mean, you know, there, there are so many and so varied. So definitely would love to do that. So, ladies, as this is an Oscars podcast, before we dive into the reason why we are here today at the Gold Standard Theatre, I think we would be remiss if we didn't spend a few brief words on the 93rd Academy Awards, which took place last Saturday, April 25th of 2021. Of course, congrats to all the winners. And of course, uh, Chloe Zhao's Nomadland has now been added to our Rolodex as the 93rd film to walk away with 
this picture. So, Zan, uh, starting here with you, uh, what were your thoughts, you know, brief thoughts on, on what we saw at the 93rd Academy Awards? I loved this minimalist Oscars. I loved that there wasn't a lot of time spent on... Now, don't get me wrong, I think Bill Conti and Debbie Allen are fabulous people, but I'm there for the speeches, I'm there for the awards, so the fact that they didn't have grandiose musical numbers or any sort of... You know, people always talk about Rob Lowe and that videotape, but nobody remember, nobody likes to talk about Rob Lowe and Pat Marina singing with Snow White back in the 80s, which was horrible. <laughs> so I, and I loved Questlove instead of a giant orchestra. And I loved that we had people all over the place. We had people where they were just in tuxedos, just saying, hey, hi from France and thanks for the office. <laughs> I thought that was incredibly cool. And I'm loving this trend of no host. You know, we start out with, you know, Oscar winner Regina King. And then we move on to comedians like Lil Rel. And just not having a host, but having just people doing the host job and having different people. I absolutely loved that. And Questlove is my new hero now because of... When he introduced Rita Moreno to, you know, she's, of course, it's the 60th anniversary of West Side Story. She's going to be in the new version of West Side Story that mm. Steven Spielberg is doing. But when it came time for her to present, the music he played was not West Side Story. It was the theme song to The Electric Company and her screaming, hey, you guys. And that just made me feel like this Oscars was my Oscar. <laughs> I didn't feel like I was too young or too old for the party. I felt just right. It was fantastic. I really, really liked it. And I loved that we got to hear long speeches. I love Francis McDormand howling at the moon. I loved all of it. I thought it was fantastic. The only thing I didn't love is that I haven't seen anything. I was very mm. remiss this year in actually watching <laughs> movies, but I thought it was fantastic. And the only other thing that I think was a problem, and even Anthony Hopkins agrees with me, that Chadwick Boseman should have won Best Actor. Mm -hmm. Yes, and on that big mm -hmm from Rachel, Rachel, what, what, what were your thoughts, you know, takeaways from the, the 93rd Academy Awards? You know, I kind of like the, the glitz and the glam and the pomp and circumstance that usually comes with it, you know, with the the massive red carpet and what everybody's wearing and, you know, seeing random combinations of celebrities together that <laughs> normally wouldn't, they wouldn't be in the same room, <laughs> uh, you know, cause whatever, you know, their specialties or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, I like the performances of like the musical numbers for like the, the best, you know, best song, nominees and and things like that uh so i i i did miss that uh i think what they did instead though giving um the presenters a chance to talk about the nominees mm -hmm. um and not just like you know name what it is or nom you know the production that they're nominated for here you know and the winner is um, you know, to talk about either some sort of 
tidbit about the production, but a lot of times the, the, what they uh, talked about the nominees had nothing to do with <laughs> what they were nominated for. I really enjoyed kind of getting these little uh, bits of, of trivia, you know, like they're, you know, this person's favorite movie growing up was X or, you know, uh, things like that. So I, I, I did, I did enjoy that it, they made it way more uh, intimate in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like the yet again, though, yeah, I I I understand how important media and entertainment is. I know it's been a godsend for you know myself with everything in the last year being stuck at home. Uh, so just to be able to have stuff to watch and be entertained uh, is important. Yet. Once again, the entire thing felt like one big old Hollywood circle jerk. Right. Um, <laughs> and platting themselves on the back, like, congratulations, everybody. We were, you know, we were, uh, you know, we helped solve the pandemic or something. It's like, eh, not really. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, that was uh, annoying, just how sycophantic. Uh, these award ceremonies can get, especially the Academy Awards. Um, yeah, you know, I was very curious. Uh, it's it funny. I was, I was just watching a uh, a YouTube video earlier talking about uh, Chloe Zhao's win and talking about they, they quoted somebody else, and it's like you know, a moment doesn't this is it a moment or a movement? Mm-hmm. And I was really curious after uh, Parasite and Bong, uh, Bong Joon-ho, you know, kind of just broke everything last year. Um, you know, having a foreign language film win Best Picture, having a director of color, uh, you know, win Best Director and all of that. Um, if if it was a moment or potentially the start of a movement, I think it's still too soon to say, because it's, this is one of those things that only time and the benefit of hindsight is really going to tell us. Um, but the fact that we did see some continuations with um, both nominations and wins with way more representation, you know, way more, uh, uh, you know, Winning, um, you know, you got, you know, uh, more than one woman nominated for Best Director, <laughs> let alone a woman winning Best Director. Only the second woman to ever win Best Director. The first woman of color to win Best Director. We've got our first uh, woman of color to win an acting award uh, you know, of, of Asian descent, I should say, you know. Uh, first woman of Asian descent to win an acting award. Um, yeah, when we talk about representation, the mind automatically goes to African Americans. As we have learned, Asians <laughs> are even worse in representation, let alone wins uh, um, among other uh, minorities. Um, so uh, you know those those wins are uh, just amazing and again i hope this is the start of something you know that maybe the academy is finally figuring things out 
maybe. <laughs> but at the same time, the way they the way this show ended shows that maybe they haven't. It's like they take three steps forward, or is it you know, and they take a couple steps backwards. Um, it's like what we say about a lot of the movies we've talked about, things like Cimarron. We're like, at least they're trying. Yes, yeah, but it's like we've we've got to go beyond trying, and actually, it's about time to go beyond trying. Yeah, yeah, and it's what you mentioned about about the lack of Asian representation. the 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 Asian population of the planet, you would think we would have more of it, and I just it's mind boggling to me that it seems like this is a novelty. Yeah, well, know, and the I fact mean, that for, Chloe, yeah, the fact that Chloe Zhao's home country of China didn't even get to see her win because it was yeah. censored oh, in China. Right. So you know, it was like you know this amazing win, and her, you know, the people, you know, back at home weren't able to you know watch in time and and be able yeah. to celebrate this amazing achievement of hers and um you know the the whole uh just the the whole changing of the categories around at the end that was weird it was, yeah, that was weird dumb. i don't think you know unless someone probably anonymously cops to it will probably never get word officially from the academy but you know, it's uh, Warren people, Beatty and Faye Dunaway. It's their fault. Yeah, most <laughs> most people are under the assumption that they put Best Actor last because we were going to get this amazing moment of Chadwick Boseman posthumously winning Best Actor, and we'd yeah, get this so amazing great. speech from his widow, and it would just be this great way to end on a high note, and the Academy could be like, "Look at us, we're so progressive," <laughs> and then it doesn't go that way and I'm not I have not seen the father I'm not going to begrudge Anthony Hopkins for his win um, from what I understand his performance was Oscar worthy um, it's and Anthony even, Hopkins so of course it is anything he does is Oscar worthy but yeah, and he was it, like what the hell am I doing with this Oscar I'm not even here <laughs> yeah, exactly you know and I don't begrudge him for not being there I mean the man is in his no. 80s we're in a pandemic there's Don't no blame him at all. Him flying all the way from Wales to Los Angeles, quarantine probably for you know at least a few days, if not uh, you know a week or whatever, to go win this award that obviously no one thought he was going to win because right. everybody thought Chadwick Boseman was going to win it. <laughs> so <laughs> you know that just the and if they kept it the way it normally goes with best picture being the last award it still would have been a really high note to end on exactly because right you got have, have two also years. a producer for nomadland so yeah we now have know. two years in a row of, of best pictures being directed by asian directors mm-hmm. you know that's a great start for us and that is a great high note yeah yeah so they they the the and I don't know how much of this was the Academy. I don't know how much of this was Soderbergh, who was you know producing the the ceremony that they decided to do things this way. But it's it uh, it backfired in a huge way, and I mean people are going to be talking about that till next year's ceremony. 
<laughs> very much so. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm obviously, much... I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I expected no less, Rachel. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm pretty much on par with the two of you. It's, uh, I mean, it was it was an interesting one to to watch. I think, and Soderbergh, I think, did good for the most part. Towards the end, my big gripe was, you know, when they were remembering the people who had passed away. That part seemed a little bit rushed. It almost seemed like, you know, we're going to speed it was so this. It was so fast. I think I, my theory is, is because they had two years of people to get through. Mm. So maybe they didn't want to dwell too much on getting people upset and, uh, and, and made depressed yeah. get, get, get people depressed. I mean, cause sadly we did lose so much talent in the, in the space of, of that time. So, but I just felt that maybe they could have been honored a little bit more. Cause it just seemed like it was really, really fast. I mean, the, so that was my main gripe. And yeah, and the, the best picture thing was like, why are we doing best picture now? It seemed kind of very, very strange. Right. And, and then it all and, kind and- of. Yeah, and to have Joaquin Phoenix, I mean, I know they like to do the traditionally have the previous year's winner be the person that presents the the next year, but Joaquin Phoenix, like, he obviously, he he and Harrison Ford, I don't think either of them wanted to be there. Mm. Uh, (laughs) At least Harrison Ford had a piece of paper to look at. (laughs) So I loved Harrison Ford, though, because he talked about Blade Runner and they were in the building that was the police station in Blade Runner. Well, yeah, yeah. But it's just like, you know, they were expecting, I think they were just expecting this amazing finale to the show. And it petered out and Joaquin Phoenix was all like, oh, well, Anthony Hopkins isn't here. We accept this award on his behalf. And like, he wasn't even like, couldn't even attempt to be excited about yes. it. So. Not, not particularly invested, definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, and that's the whole thing. That was my whole thing. It just, it closed very sort of like almost, you know, with, with almost a, a whimper rather than, you know, kind of it big. Didn't, it didn't end the way they thought it was going to. That's that. In fact, and I think they probably had some maybe super something special prepared. Maybe I don't know, tributing uh, Chadwick through uh, you know some clips or, or, or what have you. But it, I was I, I. That's why I think it. It just it was like okay, let's cut, 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 cut. We're done. Out of here. And then so uh, so that Soderbergh's was, yeah. up in the uh, the the booth going, oh, shit, <laughs> go commercial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you cut this. We're done. We're out. We're out. I'm yep. going to lose my job. I'll never, I'll never work again in this town. So, so I guess that was my my one right. But yeah, the, all in all, it was it was it was a, a decent um, decent edition for sure. So we we talked about of course ninety three. We're now going seventy years back to the twenty third film. Of course, today we are reviewing All About Eve, directed and written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, who our listeners might know from A Letter to Three Wives. As a producer, he produced such films as The Philadelphia Story and Woman of the Year, in which he introduced a certain Catherine Hepburn to a certain Spencer Tracy. Also, based on this film, of course, is based on the short story The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr. The original score was by Alfred Newman. An estimate to win today's money, this movie cost $15 million to make and made $86 million at the box office, opening on October the 13th of 1950. It has a runtime of roughly two hours and 18 minutes. So starting here with you, Rachel, well, was this the first time you sat down to watch this? And what did you make of All About Eve? Uh, this was the first time I've seen it. I was hmm. familiar with it. I just hadn't seen it. Um, and, um, I, I actually really like this. Um, it was, it's, 
it, it interesting um, plot premise. It's very women focused, mm-hmm. um, which I I really enjoyed. And and Mankiewicz seems to really know how to write for women, um, even if even if some of it is a bit cliche. Um, although at the time I don't think they were cliches. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> They're cliches now. Um, and really just the writing overall, it's just very smart. I, this is very like Sorkin-esque um, mm. with just how smartly it's written. The dialogue's just, just really, really good. You know, there's some really good quips um, by a lot of the characters. Uh, a lot of the characters are really... You know, fl- pretty good fleshed out for, um, you know, a, a movie of this time and of the the running time, um, and you know it it looks great. Of course, you know you got your Edith Head uh, <laughs> design costumes. Of course, you know, I I love that 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 uh, uh, iconic cocktail dress dress that uh, Margot wears uh, for the. The, the coming home slash birthday party. Um, it has pockets. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. 50. And Edith Head is putting pockets in dresses. Uh, so <laughs> I am here for it. Uh, so, yeah, this is just, this is just a, a, you know, an overall just a good, solid movie. Well, that's well, that's a great way to to start off. Of course, this this decades you know, from you, Rachel, indeed, and uh, and Zan. When it comes to you, what were your th- initial thoughts on all about Eve? I love this movie because I love the commentary on both, not even just both, on everything that's in this movie about the problem that women actors have with aging. The ego of actors and the dangers of fandom and the bitterness of critics all of those concepts are really very examined in this movie and done through characters that are I don't want to say they're black and white good and bad the characters you like are problematic but you still like them and the characters you don't like you just really don't like. (laughs) (laughs) So there is something about the examination of, does it really just take a pretty face and a sob story to get in anywhere? You know, there've been, there, there was a book written sometime. I don't even remember the name of the author, but he talked about how you get into being with famous people. And it's, you either appeal to their ego, which is what we saw in this movie, or you show up in a nice car dressed like them and they think you're one of them. <laughs> and oh. that, that whole dangers of, of fandom and people trying to use you and, and infiltrating you. And we've seen how this can be an incredibly dangerous situation. This movie could have been the Selena story. Mm-hmm. Oh, true. And yes. it, the fact that it it was just I might just take a couple of husbands away from you is pretty tame considering what we know about people like Selena or Rebecca Schaefer or 
Bjork or <laughs> I'm just <laughs> off the top of my head. I'm just listing people who have essentially have stalkers. And, right. you know, we, we've, I think a lot of us have seen I want to put this delicately. <laughs> Not the most gracious behavior. Right. Coming from, we'll just say media guests like at conventions. Because <laughs> that's, where, that's where I've seen it. Right. That's, that's where I've been treated poorly or been insulted or something by media guests. And you think, okay, what the heck? I'm just, I'm just back here eating Cheetos, man. Do you have to call me fat? Like, is that necessary? Mm -hmm. um, but then you watch a movie like this and you think, can you blame these people for wanting to be as distanced as possible from people they don't know and don't know if they can trust? And it's an interesting examination of that. You know, you take somebody like Charisma Carpenter, who, when she is at a convention, she is very distanced from everyone. She has people around her kind of protecting her from people. But Charisma Carpenter was almost murdered. Wow. So you can't, yeah, it's a, fa it's a, it's a terrifying story. She and some friends, she and some friends were accosted on a beach and almost killed, almost murdered. Um, and when you see things like this, you think, you know, this is not just somebody who, wants to get into my inner circle they want to be me they want to single white female me i mean this that's what i was thinking i was like this is like <laughs> yeah. mean girls meet single white female yeah yeah this is somebody who's <laughs> trying to you know who comes in with this sob story and appeals to the ego of of the actor and that's the thing their their confidence and ego sometimes sort of go hand in hand in your psyche and actors need to have both. Otherwise, how could they be on stage every night? Yeah. So she appeals, you know, Eve comes in, she appeals to Margot's ego. She appeals to Karen's sympathies. She appeals to all the men's visual <laughs> reactions because she is very lovely. And then all of a sudden there she, there she is just in the thick of it and just, just taking over. And then at the end of this movie, we find out that this is never going to stop. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing that this was written about Broadway, but I think it's definitely probably more, I mean, not to say that it isn't prevalent in Broadway, it possibly on a smaller scale, but on a more intense level, because you can get to Broadway stars a little bit easier. They live in New York they mm -hmm. have to leave the stage door and get a cab home every night. You could be at Elaine's when they're there. You know, the uh, New York is a much smaller circle than trying to get somebody that comes out of the back lot of Universal Studios or something. Yeah. So I think it's just a smaller because, like, we, you know, we see that we see the girl at the end who is from Brooklyn. So she just took the train in and now she's in her, now she's in her hotel. Like, how does this, how is this not terrifying? Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, oh, okay, that's great. Uh, you love me, kid. That's wonderful. Make me a drink. I'm going to take a nap. Get the door. Like, oh my God. You know, and it's, 
that this cycle, this cycle is never going to end. And we, we've seen it in Hollywood with, you know, like you said, 70 years later, we've seen stalker upon stalker upon stalker come from this type of situation and it can end up fatal. So the examination of this movie from a story, the examination of this concept in a movie that's based on a story from 1946 is fascinating. And I think that as the world gets smaller and people through starting with film and then going to movie magazines and then going to interviews and then now with social media fans are believing that they are a part of an industry that they are they're just they're they're not a part of it they're just partaking of its creations Mm -hmm. but this idea that you own who you are a fan of this idea that somebody who does a movie or writes a book or draws a comic or paints a painting or is in a play that because you bought that ticket or you bought that book or you bought that piece of artwork that you now are entitled to them in some way is, is terrifying. And I think it's just, I think it's just going to get, it's, I, I don't know how we're ever going to fix that problem while we do have this sort of celebrity hero worship, you know, the Kardashians being up the air, I think it's going to help us. <laughs> we don't have this celebrity worship of nothing, but basically right. being own and talking about how much you love somebody's makeup. Mm. But this concept is a very frightening, very interesting dive into the psyche. And this movie really touches on a lot of it in a way that's very dry and witty and that's not even to say that this movie really does take on the concept of women becoming irrelevant. The older they are, Mm -hmm. even though the older they get, they're almost more relevant. They, they are more knowledgeable. They are more worldly. They are more Mm. honed in their talents. They are smarter. They are just as if not more beautiful because they've learned not to, have gigantic 80s bangs or whatever (laughs) um so there's so many major major issues being presented in this in this movie that we could we could talk about this for days (laughs) exactly it's quite try not to i promise (laughs) well no it's quite the conversation piece for sure and and in fact i thing is after having seen joan crawford in grand hotel and obviously knowing the historic rivalry that her and Betty Davis had, though granted that is illustrated better in what happened to baby Jane, I was very curious to see whether I would personally end up being more team Crawford or team Davis, but I definitely will put more on that later. And and I also add, I was presently uh, pleasantly surprised to see a certain young lady by the name of Marilyn Monroe who had yet to become the legend and household name she would become, as Mm -hmm. this was just her seventh of 30 movies she would appear in in her career, and one of three movies she appeared in this year. But at the time, obviously, Marilyn was not, obviously, the icon that she is today. So it was so curious, because I was like, wait a minute, is that Marilyn Monroe? I'm like, what? There is. The funny thing is, is what I was, when I was, um, you know, doing my research is, uh, you know, she... 
supposedly after this movie developed the Marilyn persona that we all think of when we think of Marilyn Monroe. Um, like she changed the way she held herself and the way she talked and all sorts of things. But uh, I can see it. I mean, I, I recognize that voice. Yes. And the minute she appeared on appeared on screen, I was like, "That is Marilyn." <laughs> so yeah, and this was a, this was a good year for her because this was also the Asphalt Jungle, mm-hmm. which she's phenomenal in that one as well. Uh, but it's amazing that uh, you you see Marilyn and just your eyes just go right to her to her. She is that magnetic. It's true. She literally just stood out like that, and you can then you can tell you, ah, I see now why she became so iconic and just held a viewer's attention. So she's was, why I saw this movie when I was I was probably I was probably twelve years old. Ah, so the reason was really, Marilyn Monroe was your. Uh, I really got into me. Marilyn Monroe, and this is and I just started going through her catalog, and this is why I saw this movie when I first when I first saw it. Oh wow! Well, I mean, but as I said, it was, and it was, it was great because seeing us, you know, we unless our patrons ask us to do one, we won't be seeing much of Marilyn at all in this journey of ours. So it was actually pleasant and nice to actually see, you know, one of the most iconic actresses of all time. So, and it was you know, also fun to see her amongst so many talented female actresses. This was just fantastic. And that said, I now also understand why folks love this movie so much. And of course, as you were both kind of pointing out, that cautionary tale that it brings, which is just as applicable to today's world as you were uh, wonderfully illustrating there, Zan, for sure. So let's look at our characters on the board here, starting with uh, one of our leading ladies. And some could argue the tragic heroine in this picture, Betty Davis, of course, a woman who needs no introduction whatsoever as Margot Channing. So starting here with you, Zan, what were your thoughts on Margot? I, I sometimes wonder if Margot, wh- you know, where Margot ends and where Betty begins. Um, <laughs> True. <laughs> what, a lot of what I've read about Betty Davis is very similar to Margot. Just the kind of everything revolves around her. Things need to be her way, not always on time, <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's, it, it, I don't know what was in the, I don't know what was in the air in 1950, but another one of our nominees this year Sunset Boulevard also tackles this concept of the aging actress. And I think, you know, the, the difference we have here between Margot and the Gloria Swanson character is that Margot's really, really good. She's Betty Davis. <laughs> and if Margot is anything like Betty Davis, she is a fantastic actress. And doesn't matter how old she gets, she's going to be able to pull off roles that, you know, maybe Gloria Swanson couldn't have. But she, and again, this is Broadway. This is, you've got the stage. You can, you can add some makeup. You can add some, and so you might be able to play 25 when you're 40. And Betty Davis was 42 when she made this movie. So I, mm. I you know, I, I would love to, you know, maybe look up an old Dick Cavett or something like that, where she maybe talked about what it was like to make this movie sort of knowing that this is something that could potentially happen to her. And that kind of did happen to her. She started to see a, you know, decline in her reviews and decline in what she was offered as time went on is, you know, Betty Davis was in, 
Betty Davis was in movies for like 60 years, <laughs> practically. <laughs> yes. She's in she's in one of my all-time favorite all-time favorite movies, Watcher in the Woods. And she is and what year was that? 79? Something mm, like that? I believe so, yes. Um, yeah. So she was she was around for a long, long time. And it's because she's really, really good. And I think I wonder if that aspect of Betty Davis's performance that she knows I'm Betty freaking Davis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can do anything. And if I can do anything, so can Margot. And I think that's where a lot of her, I don't want to say flying off the handle comes from, but a lot of her grasping at everything comes from just trying to, stay where she wants to be you know the 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 arguments she has with bill or the the arguments she has where she's playing rat in a game of cat and mouse and she's really just trying to fight fight for everything that she may not have ever had to fight for before right you know betty davis is just that good (laughs) so maybe things came easily to her Maybe I mean I know I know they didn't, but you know maybe to Margot, it was, you know, just just like what happened with Eve. You know, you give this great audition, and all of a sudden everybody loves you, and now you're the toast of the town. And but for Margot, she was honest about who she was. So being the toast of the town and staying the toast of the town was a little bit easier. And now, when something is happening to her through no fault of her own, that's even without Eve, she's aging. So she's going to start seeing, and again, we know this because we, we know after countless interviews with older actresses about how parts started to dry up the second they turned 40, leading men stopped wanting them to be their leading woman. Directors wouldn't even see them. They were cast as mothers rather than romantic leads. We know that that's going to happen to her. And that is through no fault of her own. It's not because she's not talented. It's not because she's not beautiful. It's not because she's, <laughs> she may be late sometimes, but she's not that hard <laughs> to work with. So sort of watching her try to hold on to what she has without really knowing how to fight for that. I think it was fascinating. I think Betty Davis did, Betty Davis did such a great job with her. And you start out in this movie thinking, "Oh my gosh, here she is, just another, just another egocentric actress." Like, "Oh, whatever. I can't see her right now. I have other things to do. I have my my lotion on my face. Please send her away." But then, you know, when when Karen does talk her into letting her talk to her, and she does listen, you know, she listens to Eve. She lets her in a little too easily in my opinion but again like i said a sob story and a pretty face can get you really far evidently but i think part of why she let her in is because she needed that she needed the she needed to believe that the validation that eve was giving her was real that even though she she's aging this young actress still looks up to her I think there was a part of her that needed that. And I think Betty Davis is a person 
sometimes needed that because there's that famous story about how she wrote to Kim Carnes and said, my grandson thinks I'm cool now, thanks to you. Oh, and nice. they became they became friends and Kim Carnes sent her gold records for Betty Davis eyes to Betty Davis and Betty Davis had them hanging on her wall. Wow. So that, right. So that concept of, of appreciating the accolades from a younger generation when you, I mean, I'm, cause I'm trying to even think of somebody right now. That well, the, the one that comes maybe closest to that I immediately came to mind to me, Zan was Eric church and Bruce Springsteen when uh, Eric Church wrote the song Springsteen and he heard and Bruce heard about it, he immediately was like all over Eric saying, oh, now you and I have to tour together. You're my new best friend and right. all this kind of thing. So it, it was something similar to that. I mean, that, that's at least what came to my mind. Exactly. I'm just, I'm just trying to think of somebody who was like an ingenue in the 80s. Oh, ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, because Eric Church was already an established artist at the time. Yeah, just somebody who was an ingenue in the 80s. And now some, it'd be like if somebody wrote a song about Daryl Hannah right now. Or something, or like Taylor Swift when she came up with Tim McGraw, I guess. So just just something where you have, you know, Betty Davis wasn't exactly, you know, in the limelight. She had, like I said, bit parts in Disney horror movies, mm -hmm. and then this song comes out about her that's reminding the world that Betty Davis has some of the most beautiful eyes that have ever been on a human being <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she did say she's you know she said to kim carnes you you know you've made me cool in the eyes of my grandchildren yeah. that you know until they heard about their grandma you know you can hear about how your grandma was a famous movie star all you want to when you know back in the 70s unless you had a betamax maybe the library had those movies i mean maybe they ran on afternoon television you don't know but you're not looking at you know movie magazines you're not looking at um pinups of starlets you don't you don't see that kind of stuff she's just your grandma to you and then to turn on the radio with your friends and have them talking about your grandmother it's pretty amazing so i think the parallel of that where just you know needing the i think that she fell for eve's line of crap because i think she needed the validation and to know that even younger generations are still looking at her looking to her and you know, I, I feel I definitely felt for her because, yeah, she was a pain in the neck sometimes, yeah. you know, being trying to be tough when she really should have been honest and being I, I really don't have a lot of patience for people who are like multiple hours late for things. <laughs> but she's still good at what she did. She still had a lot to offer. She still had an audience. And I think she needed to know that. Very, very, very well said for sure. And Rachel, what were your thoughts on Margot Channing? <laughs> Just watching her be so on the at, at, at first glance, seeming so sure of herself and so self-assured and confident in her career and who she is, you know, the, they, they tell us that this play that she's in, which I think that the name of the play is just hilarious considering, you know, <laughs> aging in wood, you know, cause considering what this movie is essentially about aging, um, that, uh, you know, she brings in this, this 
young girl who, yeah, is is stroking her ego in a way that she obviously really needed. Mm. But then Eve is almost too good at her job to the point where having her around is no longer a, an ego trip for for margo it's a reminder of just how young she not she no longer is and um it's you know her you could just see just her self esteem and self-assurance and confidence just spiral and go down the toilet um, to the point where, you know, she just gets absolutely hammered at the, the Bill's birthday party and, um, you know, keeps making the, the piano player just play the same, like, melancholy song. Depressing over song over, over and over again. again. <laughs> and... Uh, to the point where even the guests are like, can he play something else? This is depressing. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, just the, in a, in a strange, um, you know, life imitating art. Cause you know, Zan, you mentioned it's like, where does Margot and Betty Davis begin is, um, she actually was her marriage to husband number three was ending at the time when they were filming this. Um, hence oh, why and her... guess who she married after that? <laughs> Star mm-hmm. Gary Merrill. Uh, but apparently, her really ra- like raspy voice in this movie is because she burst a blood vessel in her throat from Ooh. yelling at her soon-to-be ex-husband. Wow. Um, and uh, Mankiewicz is like, actually, I like the sound of that, so let's just go with it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she's a passionate. But yeah, she she ends up she ends up marrying uh, you know, her her co-star like in July of 1950. Like they finished oh, filming. Oh, she got divorced at the beginning of July, and she was married to Gary Merrill at the end of July. <laughs> yeah, she wasted yeah. no time. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, you know, it, there's that scene where um, when she and uh, um, Karen are, are sitting in the car waiting for for Lloyd to come, come back with gas for the car. And, you know, she has this, like, little monologue about, you know, essentially being like, well, you know, the... Bill's not really in love with me, Margot. He's he's in love with the idea of the actress Margot, the star Margot. And, you know, it's like, you know, time time will eventually pass. You know, 10 years will go by and it'll fizzle out and it'll, you know, the romance will, will be gone. And that's actually what happened. She and, and Gary were together like 10 years. And then it was like, pfft. and she even said after, it's like, yeah, we, we were really more in love with the idea of each other as who we were in this movie, oh, wow. as opposed to who we were in real life, which the fact that they still stayed together for 10 years, like in Hollywood, that's all like a lifetime. Uh, so, um, but, um, uh, she even she even approached Mankiewicz after they finished this movie about possibly doing a sequel following just Margot and Bill, and obviously it never happened. But she uh, ran into Mankiewicz years later 
at a party or something and she's like don't worry about that sequel i've lived it it doesn't end well (laughs) (laughs) in pure betty davis fashion (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah it's such a perfect response (laughs) to yeah yeah, but it's just yeah. It it, it the, even nowadays this is a good cautionary tale for a lot of different you know the the futility of of fame and beauty or you, you know at least the standard of beauty you know living up to whatever modern day considers beautiful air quotes beautiful um, and. You know that the, the superficial adoration from your adoring fans and and the public. Um, I, I would be really interested to see, not necessarily a remake of this movie, but maybe inspired by this movie. Because yeah, you, I mean, you still have the power that the. the imbalanced power dynamic of a celebrity to the fans and how fans can feel very, you know, strong emotions and seemingly ownership of a celebrity, especially because of, of things like social media and stuff uh, today. Um, but I would be, I would be interested to see this kind of turned on its head though, mm. and do a modern version where the power dynamic is actually in the hands of this of the um the not the fan being like the one taking advantage because they've been brought into the circle but the other way around because we're starting we're we're seeing that now um i'm sure it was it has has happened throughout the ages you know ever since celebrities have been a thing but we really especially with social media seeing a lot now of stories of celebrities using that power that they have with their fans bringing fans into their circle and then abusing them true and taking advantage of them um so i bet that would I'm not a screenwriter by any means, but if someone out there, you could, there's an idea for you. Take this <laughs> with social media and kind of turn it around and see what you can do with it. Because I think that would be really interesting. I love the concept already, Rachel, for sure. I mean, it'd be interesting to see it to say it, um, you know, if um, roles were reversed for sure. And there is actually a, a an interesting theatrical remake, which you said, so literally theater where Gillian Anderson plays Margot Channing and Lily James plays Eve Harrington. And obviously Gillian Anderson does a fantastic job. I'm just going to say, but well, I mean, okay, I'm biased because I love anything that Gillian does, but she is fantastic in this, in this role for sure. And, and, um, you know, before I also lose my train of thoughts, Zan, another uh, sort of story that you were mentioning about, you know, fans and, and stuff about, uh, should we say the ingenue, if you will, uh, having these kind of stories. It also fun story about Michelle Pfeiffer and Bruno Mars when he came out with Uptown Funk and apparently her children were like, became were like, were like, Oh, our mom is so cool because Bruno Mars called her out in his <laughs> song. So, and she said she like had to almost, uh, was almost like so embarrassed whenever she was like carpooling and Uptown Funk came on the radio. Oh, she- <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, so so I had to shut out also because I love Uptown Funk. But I thought it was that's a, that's a great little story. So I have to also admit this being my first Betty Davis picture, 
I was impressed by her performance, to put it mildly. And all the stories about why she's considered one of Hollywood's finest actresses to ever grace the silver screen are certainly not exaggerated. And Margot, I feel, does very much represent that actress and diva who, like many actresses, is incredibly talented. But like you guys were pointing out, has been haunted by the specter of age and what that will do for her career. And I don't think it helps that her writer, Lloyd Richards, continues to write younger and younger parts for her. Though it may be a way of flattering her, and maybe it's almost Margot's fountain of youth, if you will, as she's almost kidding herself that she's still a 20-something-year-old. Also, of course, yeah, she is very much taken in by Eve's masterful manipulative skills and is literally tripped by, you know, partly her gripping tightly to her career and her own insecurities, and is also very much a victim of her own friends unwillingly sabotaging her. And we'll definitely get to that after. And, and I suppose that by movie's end, she does reach some form of acceptance and decides to seize the moment and marry the man she loves, i.e. Bill Sampson. And like you were pointing out, Rachel, some of the monologues this character was given did in my eyes make her very much a Shakespearean tragic character. And I feel this character does represent the sacrifices that w women in the entertainment business do have to make in order to make it to the top. And, and I did feel bad at how she welcomes this serpent, this Eve, into her garden and really does want to help her. And when she realizes what she's been up to, it's too late. Though she did start having doubts about Eve after the call that Eve had placed on Bill's birthday. And of course, after talking to the very sharp-witted Birdie, who is definitely no fool. And speaking of which, let's look at the rough and tough New Yorker, who seems to be one of the few to not be completely sold when it comes to Eve. And no surprise, her strong New York accent actually was her arrow in her quiver when it came to her career, as she landed numerous roles because of it. We are talking about, of course, Thelma Ritter as Birdie, who my listeners might know from The Misfits, Rearview, Birdman of Alcatraz, and more. Rachel, so starting here with you, what did you make of Birdie? Um, <laughs> I mean, it was it was nice to see like the sassy like lady in waiting. I mm -hmm. guess not be the you know African American mammy. I guess yes. <laughs> um. Uh, so she, I mean, everyone else seems to be like, you know, I. She's like the only one that doesn't really get a whole lot of backstory. Um, because, I mean, she is, you know, kind of literally a background character. You know, she's the one that's like doing things for, uh, you know, for Margo and whoever. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I wonder um, just like, you know, is is she been in this role for just such a long time that she's just she's learned how to read everybody? So even when they're just you know so caught up in their own you know bullshit that's going on, that she can see through it, and that's why she you know she makes some of the comments that she does, <laughs> just because she's like I see through all of this. Y'all got your heads you know stuck up your rear ends, but. Uh, I can see what's going on and, you know, I'm going to throw out my two cents. And if you don't pay, you know, obviously no one really seems to take her, her, her comments to, to heart and actually mm -hmm. use them 
but uh, no, she's just uh, I would be interested to see to find out more about her like you know is is this always been what she's done or you know maybe did she work in show business at one point and you know as as time went on she got older she was forced down and now she's relegated in this role so that could be an interesting plot twist that maybe she was once a Margot herself and this is what happens. <laughs> you know? um, that's that very, very clever point. Yes. And uh, Zan, what were your thoughts on Thelma Ritter and Birdie? Oh my God. I love Thelma Ritter so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, every time I see the Thelma Ritter's in a movie, I'm like, yay, I'm so happy. <laughs> um, uh, Thelma Ritter, should have gotten at least one of the six Oscars she was nominated for, but never won. Um, and once again, we would not be in this mess if we had just listened to Thelma Ritter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I feel like just listen to Thelma Ritter. She's always right. She knows what she's talking about. Just take her advice. Just do it. Um, I, I do. I definitely feel like this is a character that could have gone several ways. Like you guys were saying, it could have been that she had once been the Eve and now she's being usurped as opposed to Betty Davis being the one who's going to be usurped if she's not careful. But the way Thelma Ritter played this character was that she and Margot had known each other in vaudeville when Margot was the Eve. Mm. And I'm saying the Eve as a younger looking up to the older, not the conniving sociopath. (laughs) (laughs) And Margot continued on to be a star outside of vaudeville, but Bertie didn't. But Bertie, pun intended, had taken Margot under her wing and just never left her. And so you got, or at least I got this feeling that they were friends, that she was more than just the person that worked for her. It was sort of the vaudeville's not a thing anymore. You are not succeeding in theater the way theater has manifested itself now but I'm still going to take care of you financially. I'm still going to give you a job. You're going to work for me so you can still be in the culture, even though you might not be in the show. This vaudeville, not all of vaudeville translated very well. I mean, some of it did okay into silent film. And then when silent film was gone, a lot of vaudeville just did not translate. So there were a lot of vaudeville stars that didn't really have a lot of places to go. And so I get the feeling that their relationship was sort of a beneficial, we're going to take care of each other type of a relationship. And she's a good judge of people. And she just said, yeah, I don't, do you want an argument or do you want an answer? Like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't like this girl. I don't trust her. There's something wrong with her. And you get that cliche answer from betty davis that is you know oh you're just jealous because she likes me and blah, 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 you know whatever that that whole cliche thing of you're just jealous uh which is almost always deflection from the other person 
Um, but she, I, I, I really think that Margot does not want to see it because Margot, Margot needs the validation. Margot needs the adoration that Eve gives her. Whereas she needs Birdie too, but in a different way. She needs Birdie the way you need like your mom. You know, like Birdie's always going to be there. Birdie's always going to be there to take care of her. And she's always going to be there to take care of Birdie. And then Birdie just sort of like kind of stops being part of the picture for a long <laughs> she, like, time. Disappears. She like disappears because I, I have a feeling that she's just like, I don't want any part of this. I don't want any part of this crazy woman. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be there when the, when it hits the fan. <laughs> I don't want, I told you so I did my part. I'm washing my hands of this stuff. So I think this is a great Thelma Ritter type character. Thelma Ritter is always the wisest one in the room. She always makes the most sense. She always is frank. She tells it like it is. And she's pretty much always right. <laughs> and this movie is no exception. If we had just listened to Thelma Ritter in the first 20 minutes of this movie, none of this crap would have happened. <laughs> yes and and actually speaking of mothers i could see this character being tony scaponi's mother from going my way as she does have that kind of pretty rough and tough personality and whom will pretty much always speak her mind so like maybe this maybe she's uh related to tony scaponi in some way but she's like very... or like she's the mother of like all of the dead end kids or something yes. <laughs> If you've got a tough kid, their mom is going to be Thelma Ritter. She's That's, she's yeah. perfect. I love her. I love her. She's one of my all-time favorite actresses. I cannot tell you a good enough good things about Thelma Ritter. No, well, I mean, I, I I love this character, and also, yeah, she because she is very much that that character who attends on the stars and tends to see and perceive way much more than the stars themselves, and. As I'm, I'm assuming that coming from a humble background herself, she does initially sympathize with Eve's false story about growing up in poverty and losing a husband in the war. But she's very quick, like you guys were pointing out, in catching on to Eve's scheme. As naturally, you know, being Margot's maiden assistant, she has her mistress's interests at heart. And I believe it's safe to say that she's possibly her closest true friend in this as she is the first to warn Margot to keep an eye on Eve and also maybe plants those seeds of suspicion in her mind, which don't seem to bear fruit for a while. But, uh, but she is like, you know, keep an eye on this girl. She's trying to be you. I, and I really, really mu very much enjoyed this character. And Thelma Ritter's performance was just fantastic, fantastic stuff. She was just great, great to see every time she was on screen. So let's get to Margot's sweetheart, an actor himself, and like you were both mentioning, real-life fourth and final husband of Betty Davis, Gary Merrill, of course, as Bill Sampson. So, Zan, when it came to Bill, what did you make of him? I liked Bill. I liked Bill's character because you... And you don't see this very much now, and you definitely didn't see it in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. but he was there for Margot. His, his character was there for Margot. It's not that her character revolved around him. You don't usually see that, yeah. that, you know, like Rachel was saying, this movie has a lot, it was very woman centric and the male characters were kind of there to be supporting characters and women's stories. And yeah. They were more ancillary. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, yeah. Ancillary is a good word. And you don't, like I said, you still don't see that very often. You're seeing it more now that you did not see it back in the 1950s. And I liked, I liked Bill because the character was very obviously in love with her. He was not going to put up with abuse as a way of soliciting reassurance, which I think Margot's character did a few times. Uh, just a lot of projection of you're going to do this and you're going to be that, that whole, I'm going to be tough. So when you hurt me, it's not going to hurt as much. That attitude. I feel like Bill was onto that and he was not interested in that. So when you have that moment where it seems like they're going to break up after that moment, after that row because of the audition. And then we find out that Eve is the understudy, but he really does genuinely love her. You know, at the beginning we see him go. I don't like, I don't particularly, I'm a little concerned about their relationship because, you know, he's kind of being courted by Hollywood, goes out to Hollywood to direct a film and then comes back. And so you're worried about this couple that where she's on Broadway, he might be Hollywood. This might not work. Maybe they should get a house in Utah in the middle, something. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I, I did like him and I liked that he seemed like a genuinely nice person. He seemed to have genuine sympathy for Eve and wanted to believe in the best about Eve. But the second she tried to come on to him, he smacked that down. He just put an end to it. He's like, yeah, shut up. I love Margot, and that's never going to change. So knock it off. Um, and like I said, I, these male characters sort of being there as a to support the female story was interesting because we only see like just very briefly in a little silent montage of him actually directing. Yeah. So you know we know he's a director, but we don't see this is an interesting story where it takes place about theater people, but we are so rarely in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I found myself really rooting for the two of them, really rooting for their relationship. And, you know, knowing what you know about off screen that she, he winds up marrying Betty Davis and even Betty Davis and Ann Baxter became lifelong friends. Yeah. Um, this, this, this cast of people really seem to genuinely like each other. And I think that came across in his character. He's, he could have gone a couple of different ways. Like, for example, um, I don't trust Lloyd any further than I can throw him, but I do trust Bill. And I, I just like seeing that there was a male character younger than his romantic interest, but not falling into the tropes of being seduced by Hollywood, being seduced by a 20 something being, seduced by success he still just at the end of the day just loves Margot, mm -hmm. and i i just i loved the purity of that i love the purity of that about this character definitely a man of principle for sure and for sure. <laughs> and rachel you know as you talk, mentioned him a little bit earlier what, what were your thoughts on bill yeah um, he was i was genuinely genuinely surprised when Eve comes on to him and he's like no I'm in love with Margot <laughs> haven't you mm -hmm. heard 
<laughs> word on the street is she's my main squeeze. <laughs> um, and and he was all like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And he's all like, yeah, he has that line. He's like, if I want something, I prefer to go after it. I don't want it coming after me. <laughs> so, uh, such a good line. Love it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's it's nice to see a guy not follow the the stereotype plot line, you know. It's like, you know, trading in for a younger model. Um, and, you know, he went to Hollywood, did the one picture deal, and then came back. Uh, you know, um, and other than the, when they have their, their arguments, it's it's all because he's, he's getting frustrated with Margot because of just how, like, paranoid and like self-deprecating she gets um and uh it can be really really frustrating when someone you care about is spiraling and you don't know how to help them true um so i you know is it sucks that you know he takes off for a while but uh, it's it's somewhat understandable, um, but at the end of the day, you know, they they get back together and uh, they presumably get married. <laughs> <laughs> so after that three day waiting period, and uh, you know, they live happily ever after. Yeah, sure. And I, I you know I have to be honest. From a man's perspective, I was glad that he was not another of the men who would kind of fall to Eve's, you know, charms, if you will. Because, like, come on, not all guys are like this. Thank you, Bill, for holding the torch for us men, showing folks that there are some good men out there as well. Because this is another character whom I think, like, Margot does also act as a commentary for, for Mankiewicz on the star system. As Bill also gets a rather poignant monologue in the dressing room when Eve meets him, Margot, and the gang for the first time. And... And it's very curious that Mankiewicz put in that whole rivalry between the theater and the rise of Hollywood, almost being potentially replacing and dethroning the theater as the preferred art form. So I love that we get this criti- this commentary through these characters. I think Bill very much represents that. And also, I got the impression of a rather jaded and tired performer who possibly feels he's coming to the end of his tether as much as he seems to be disenchanted with the star system, he does want to possibly break away from the theater and take a shot at moving pictures, which surprises me that a similar suggestion would not have been made for Margot. But she does seem incredibly loyal and tied to the theater. So you do have that that dichotomy, if you will, and something that the, the commentary I really, really liked. And yes, I have to hand it to Bill for keeping it in his pants, if you will, when it came to Eve, unlike possibly other characters. So... Kudos to you, Bill. You're my hero. Uh, Love you for that, buddy, for sure. So let's get to two other members who are a part of Margot's intimate circle. We have, of course, Celeste Holm as Karen Richards, whom we had seen discussed in Gentleman's Agreement, and Hugh Marlowe as Lloyd Richards, whom my listeners will know from The the Day the Earth Stood Still, Raw Hyde, Elmer Gantry, and many, many more. So, Rachel, starting here with you, what were your thoughts on the Richardses? Um... (laughs) 
<laughs> I'll start with Lloyd. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lloyd, um, yeah, Lloyd's just trying to do his job mm. throughout this, like this entire thing. Um, he seems to be the one person that's not as I think as emotionally invested in Margot's like mental health as compared to to Bill and 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 Karen. Um, he, he still cares, but at the end of the day, it's like you know he's like I'm the director, and I just need to make sure that the show goes on here. <laughs> um, and um, uh, yeah, they they have their moments. Uh, there's one scene where they're like all arguing i think there's a couple of scenes where they're arguing but we don't actually hear what the argument is about um and uh but you know is is kind of all this drama is un unfolding around him and he's just like i'm just trying to make work happen um <laughs> but he i mean he does seem supportive to whatever uh Karen seems to do, and even Karen, when she and and Eve are having a discussion um, about uh, Eve becoming Margot's understudy, and you know, she's like, "Well, what will Lloyd think?" Like, he'll just do what he's told. So, <laughs> you know, it's just like I, I think between those two, I think maybe Karen wears the pants mm -hmm. <laughs> in that relationship. Um, so. Uh, so yeah, he, I mean, he's he's not as fleshed out as as some of the others, but um, you know, he has his part to play in this this whole thing, and and he does it. Um, and but Karen, on the other hand, <laughs> I just I don't <laughs> because they use the voiceovers. Um, several times and when we have the voiceover from Karen about how she gets the idea that she's going to play this prank on Margot, and she makes it sound like it's like the best idea and when Margot finds out it's going to be you know she's going to think it's so funny and I just I think she was thinking that if Margot misses a performance, something that she just does not do, um, ever, even if she's dead, she'll still figure out how to how to do a performance. Apparently, um, that that'll and the show will go on just fine without her and her with her understudy in her place. That that will. Show her that she's what that that she's it's it's okay to take a step back, or she's not as great as she thinks she is. It almost seems like she thinks Margot's like getting full of herself. Mm, that was my impression. Yeah, but that's not the impression I'm getting from Margot that she's not getting full. It's quite the the opposite. She's having like a serious issues with her self-esteem mm -hmm. yeah it's almost like an identity crisis or a, or, right. yeah, or, so or a midlife like, crisis yeah yeah so it's like i don't see how taking margot down a peg or two 
would help because she's already down lots of pegs. If yes. anything, she needs to be supported back up. And, and inadvertently, she gives Eve her big break. Yeah. Because if she... I'm trying to remember as far as the, the plot is concerned because Eve becomes Margot's understudy after she does the script read. Yeah, correct. Yeah, because okay. Marilyn Monroe's character apparently was pregnant or also was sick and so yes. she wasn't able to get the part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh so so by then Eve has shown that she's actually a, a good actress and yeah. she has the potential to be a huge star. And surely Karen has been privy to these conversations. Hmm. And it's like, why would you, you know, your friend Margot is already paranoid that this, this gal is going to come in and take her place. And then you go ahead and hand her that opportunity on a silver platter. It'd be one thing if Eve was, you know, just, they'd be like, oh, you know, she'll, she's passable. If, for, you know, if for whatever reason, Margot couldn't go on, she would be okay. Mm. You know, it would do, she would do the job, but no, these people are like, oh my God, she's amazing. You know, she, you know, with time she could be as good as Margot, if not better, you know, they're talking about how amazing Eve is. And then she gives her the opportunity to 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 show just how good she is to a a decent sized audience, and it comes back to bite her in the butt. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in in some ways. So I just I, I that that just that part of the plot just confused me. The logic behind. Like, surely if they wanted, like, Eve to get her opportunity to show, to shine and just how, show how big a star she could be, they could have found another way to do it. True. Yeah, because Karen could have just told, you know, Lloyd to write a part for Eve where she can maybe, you know, be a supporting actress or something so folks can see her, but leave Margot as the star. So mm -hmm. you, you could have gone about it in, in different different ways for sure. And, and, and Zan, when it comes to you, what did you make of Karen and Lloyd? I'll start with Lloyd also. Um, Lloyd weirded me out for some reason. <laughs> like, like, you, like we were saying before that he keeps writing these younger and younger characters. And I don't know if either one of you watched the uh, Alan versus Pharaoh documentary on HBO. And they had manuscripts, unproduced manuscripts by Woody Allen from his collection at some university or library, I forget where it was, but it was constantly 25 crossed out 20 crossed out 18 like they just kept getting younger as he got older mm. and that might be too fresh in my mind <laughs> watching this but that concept of him just knowing he has this actress who's growing but he's not he's still constantly in the okay 24 year old blah blah blah, blah. so he just sort of weirded me out and he at the end when Eve is talking to Addison about how Lloyd is going to leave his wife and they're going to get married and stuff. Like I believed it for a second. I, <laughs> I would have believed that from Lloyd. And I, and I, 
I kind of felt for Karen because she was talking about how what the, the way they described love in this, I thought was very, was, was very cool because of Betty Davis talking about he's in love with, you know, Margo, the persona, not Margo, the person. And when Karen says that everything he fell in love with about everything about me that he fell in love with, he's used to now. Mm-hmm. I thought that was such a wonderful way of describing how people can feel when they've been together for a long time and they feel like they might be in a rut and they feel like they have to do something different or spice it up or whatever. I felt that that was such a poetic way of saying it, but I I sort of believe that he would be like that, that he was so, and even when he's having that argument with, with Margot, that just, he's just so mad at her for, not even being vindictive against Eve, just not wanting to give Eve a chance. And she's just this kid. I feel like they're both way too naive for being the people that they are for being, you know, a playwright and a playwright's playwright's wife, which is, I loved her saying I'm the lowest form of celebrity. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was hilarious. And I know I'm going to sound like a total bitch when I say this and I don't mean to, but Try being the wife of a comic book artist. It's the lowest that there possibly is. <laughs> People just want, they, they only want to know where somebody else is. That's the only reason anyone ever talks to you. Like, oh, uh, you're so-and-so's wife. Will he be back? That's, <laughs> that's, all, that's all you are. Either people, either people think you can get sketches by asking you, they can get sketches by asking you, or they just want to know when he's back from lunch. That's it. That's, that's the only reason you're well-known. Um, Zan, we love you for who you are. You know that. Well, You're a wonderful <laughs> podcast. By the way, can I have some autographed uh, pictures from Chris? <laughs> yes, you certainly can. Let, let's let, let's let's drive for the weekend, and we'll we'll get those to you when you're about to get Um No, it's just it, that th- that line just made me laugh, and I'm like, God, there are some weekends out of the year that I just really feel like that. That I'm just I'm, I, I feel like I'm there, and people are looking at, at a convention or something, and people are looking at me like. Who the hell are you, and who did you steal that guest badge from? Like, you just have this. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's suspicious of like, are you infiltrating? I'm like, no, I'm just married to this one. Um, so I, I thought that line was was very funny. Just just being being the wife of someone who creates something is just sort of like, yeah, hi, I'll just be over here. Don't don't ask me for things because I don't do jack. Like, <laughs> I'll talk about how conventions are tiring, and I'll be like, listen to me, I don't do anything. I go shopping. That's it. Like. <laughs> I totally suck. So, <laughs> but that, but the the idea that they have been around all kinds of people, either touring with their plays or having hit plays and having this can't be the first hanger on that they've come across. True. Okay. So I feel like they're both kind of naive, and I feel like Karen really, really means well. She's very sweet. She's a very kind character. She adores Margot. She adores her husband. She adores Bill. I mean, she just loves her friends and loves the people she's with. But she falls for Eve way too quickly. I feel like she should be listening to Selma Ritter. (laughs) She buys that line of crap. And we were watching this movie. Chris and I were watching this movie. And she tells the story about Eddie and the war and Chris looks at me and he said, is any of that real? And I'm like, I don't remember, but I know most of it isn't like, (laughs) I think some of it's real, but like most of it's not. 
and just this idea of her being so fascinated by this stalker that this can't be the first time she's seen a stalker is how it feels to me. She's, she goes at the beginning of the movie, Karen goes out to look for Eve because she's just so fascinated by this woman who's come to every performance and she's always here. And who is she? What is she doing? What, she's a stalker. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't feed that. Don't, don't feed that. And the fact that she, this, she's the luckiest person in this movie, frankly. The fact that she is comes up, she is she's not found out about what happened with coming back from the country and the car running out of gas. Right. The fact that she would do something like that, just to sort of prove a point that you're giving Eve too hard of a time. You should oh my god, this is her career we're talking about. This is she should also know being the wife of a playwright, this is a fickle business. And this is an industry where you play a wicked witch once in your life. You never get another job again. This is not, sometimes there's a, sometimes that stage door closes on you and it never opens again. And she knows what Margot is dealing with, with being an aging woman on Broadway, which is hard enough let alone to have to be an aging woman on Broadway with a younger woman literally right there in the room with her trying to usurp her position in her relationships and in her career. So the fact that she does that to try and just get Margot to calm down a little bit or just to get her to see that, I don't know what she thought. Did she think that Eve was not going to be as good as Margot? Did she think that she was going to be good but in a different way and oh look there's room for all of us on broadway and there's not we are well aware that broadway is a very very small elite group of extremely talented people and it is not easy to get into again this these movies make it look so easy to get into show business and it's just not that easy what the hell was she thinking what was she thinking that is a that is a cruel thing to do and what if they hadn't been around houses? It was wintertime. Did you see the two of them huddled together in their fur coats with a blanket on? <laughs> this was dangerous. What she did was dangerous and cruel. And while I feel like she learned her lesson and figured it out, I feel she just got, she got way luckier than I think she deserved. Um, she does figure out, like, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't. I should listen to Margot and how she feels and not just put my own heartstrings above my logic. <laughs> and that scene where, where Margot says, you know, I don't really want to play that part. I want to keep doing this one. It's what I, it's what I'm known for. It's what I've done it. And where she just starts laughing, you know, you can, you can feel how relieved she is that this is not going to be an issue and I'm not going to be found out and it's going to be, it's going to be fine. <laughs> But at the same time, then you have her having to watch her husband go to work with this young woman that obviously wants to usurp everybody she comes in, every woman she comes in contact with. And when she can't get Margot's guy, who's, who's the next logical, <laughs> logical step? Maybe not the director that can help her out, but how about the playwright that can help her out? So 
I feel like both of these characters were way more naive than they should have been. Um, in the end, I, I did like Karen, even though she did a really, really, really stupid thing. I feel like she figured out how stupid it was. At least she learned from it. But yeah, Lloyd, I don't, I don't necessarily trust Lloyd. Even at the end, when they have that kiss at the awards ceremony, I feel like they had some, that was a kiss of, today is the first day of the rest of our relationship. Like they had some really, really uh, long conversations about what is going to happen in their marriage from now on. So I didn't particularly trust him. <laughs> well, to quote what you had mentioned about the graduate, Zan, I think I had sex with that girl like a lot. <laughs> so, that's like my a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's my impression but yeah starting you know i'm, I'm also gonna go be starting with karen here i mean i'm still wrestling with this character and, and her motives as she's one of the many people who gets taken in and plays into eve's master plan because she is genuinely taken by eve and her sob story and very much wants to do everything in her power to help her possibly without realizing it to the detriment of her longtime friend Margot, as she's of the imp my thought was she's of the impression that Margot might possibly be getting too big for her boots and wants to teach her a lesson in humility, and thus sabotages Margot when it comes to not filling up the gas tank in the car, so as Margot can't make it to her performance of Aged Inwood, thus allowing Eve to further her own career. So it might have been, I mean, obviously, I guess it's open to interpretation, but I thought it was almost like a kick in the pants. Granted, Margot, as Rachel was pointing out, needs support. She doesn't need to be kicked down. But, um, and, you know, she possibly feels like she's doing Margot a kindness, maybe, and showing her that she's wrong about Eve and that she deserves to have her talent showcased. But terrible, terrible move. And you can see that she's then obviously plagued with guilt, by the time she realizes too late, the damage has been done and she's become Eve's unwilling accomplice. But you think she would open to Margot about what she'd done and why she did it rather than keeping silent, especially after that speech by Margot about how much she loves her friends. And, and also when she mentions to Lloyd and her that they've been chosen as witnesses for her and Bill's wedding. I was like, oh, man, you really you should tell her. But uh, I, and that's why, yes, as you were saying, Zan, uh, she gets off way too easy. When it comes to Lloyd, talk about a man who is pretty much seduced by Eve's charms. Because we get to the point where he's fighting with folks he never would have fought with before in order to make sure that Eve gets what she wants. And I'm actually in the, under the assumption that by that point, he and Eve are having an affair, though it's hard to tell also knowing what an unreliable narrator Eve is. So I guess it could go both ways. But I did get, get the impression that was what was going on. And of course, it will be Addison DeWitt who will put the, the kibosh down on Eve for that. And speaking of which, let's get to one of the few characters who sees through Eve from pretty much the get-go, Mr. Addison DeWitt, played by whom had played a rather similarly oily character in Rebecca as Jack Favell. We are, of course, talking about Mr. George Sanders, who also acts as narrator initially in this film. So, Zan, starting here with you, what did you make of Addison DeWitt? I loved Addison DeWitt. <laughs> He's, I mean, of course I hated him. He's a horrible person. <laughs> but that, that's the talent of George Sanders. George Sanders, yeah, I mean, I... 
uh, fans of horror movies have to love George Saunders. So, um, he for you know, Village of the Damned. Um, that's that's where I know him from the best is from Village of the Damned. Um, when he first when this movie first starts and you hear him narrating, you think this is going to be a comedy. Mm-hmm. He is so funny. He has such a caustic wit, and he's the theater critic that I think of when I think about the Mortimer character in Arsenic and Old Lace, the actual play Arsenic and Old Lace, <laughs> who is, he is a theater critic that hates plays. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you've ever seen the play Arsenic and Old Lace in the movie, the character, this is the, this is the, um, um, Oh my gosh. Why can't I think of names? Anyway, um, the character he made in the movie, me think of the food critic from um, Ratatouille for some reason. Kind of, yeah, kind of. So um, in the movie, he's he writes books about why marriage is terrible. You know, he's he's sort of this um, eternal bachelor type like why well, you should never get married and it's terrible for men to get married blah 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 blah, blah. but in the play the irony is that he um that he is a brewster that's it mortimer brewster i couldn't think of it yeah carrie grant's character in the movie but in the play he's he's a theater critic that hates plays like there's a scene in the play where he says that in order to save time he's going to write the review on the train to the play and I felt like if Mortimer Brewster were like now a crotchety old man, he would have been Addison. <laughs> and um, the the character is just so every cliche about critics. You know the the, the um, w- when I was in uh, when I when I was doing music in in high school and college when I was doing musical theater and taking music theory courses and everything there was a there was something that people said that was very similar to those who can do those who can't teach mm-hmm. and it was when someone in your orchestra can't play an instrument you take away their instrument you give them two sticks and you give make them a percussionist <laughs> and then if they can't do that you take away one of their sticks and make them a conductor and then if they can't do that you take away the stick give them a pen and make them a critic <laughs> so there is this there is this real adversarial relationship in the theater between critics and actors mm. and this movie plays this so perfectly where he shows up to the party and she's like oh hey what are you doing here I specifically made sure you were not on my invitation list <laughs> you know they are so like hateful towards each other it makes this movie almost a comedy and when you're so mad at him for basically taking advantage of the backhanded backstabbery that Eve puts on by saying, oh, okay, I'm going to call every critic I know and invite them to this performance. He sort of takes advantage of that. Not necessarily as a way to build her up, but as a way to bring Margot down a peg. 
And, you know, not that there's anything with Mar- wrong with Margo, it's just, it's, it's, you know, after the party they've had, they've been throwing insults back and forth at each other. Yeah. And this is now his move, you know, the balls in his court, he's going to take it. And so you wind up just, you're like, Oh, do you like anyone or anything? He's a very comic book guy, you know? Yes. Oh, like sunset, be more orange, you know, that kind of a guy. <laughs> and so you, you know, you, you spend most of this movie thinking, God, what an ass. He's just a jerk, but he's funny, but he's, but he's a total jerk. And you're like, not surprised why he's totally alone all the time. And he basically has to blackmail somebody into being his girlfriend, which is a creepy dick move. I'm not going to say it's not. That's very, very creepy about him. But at the end, when he says, he basically says, uh, I'm Addison freaking DeWitt. I know everything and I know who you are. And you're not going to get away with breaking up somebody's marriage. You know, at the end of the day, he is a creeper, but he's doing the right thing. I mean, he's not going to let her get away with breaking up Karen and Lloyd just because she thinks she can. Hmm. And so I have, by the end of this movie, I have sort of a, you know, his whole, like, you know, you're mine now. I own you. You're like, that's a little bit rapey and gross. But at the same time, excellent comeuppance for Eve. Gotta love that. So, but, but as a, as a character, I thought he was, you know, on the whole, 90% hilarious, 10% very creepy and very rapey, but okay. it, which we have to acknowledge, <laughs> but like I said, he starts this movie and you're, you think it's going to be a comedy. That's how, that's how witty this character is. Oh, very much so. And I think it's also, once again, kudos to Mankiewicz for the writing, indeed, uh, as Rachel yeah. was pointing out earlier. And speaking of, of you, Rachel, what did you make of uh, Addison DeWitt? Yeah, he's... I can't decide about him. Um, like I said, I knew about this this movie before I watched it, so I knew somewhat uh, a little bit about it. And... Uh, they brought up uh, an interesting point with this character, uh, you know, because this is the, you know, this is the era of the code and everything. But I, and I, can, I can kind of see where they're coming from, but he almost comes off as maybe Addison is gay. Hmm. Yeah, I, I had heard that story because there was that theory that apparently he's a gay character and Eve might be a lesbian. Well, yeah, yeah. The, when she, we'll, we'll get to her. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but and, and that's why he he has some mannerisms that you would mm. stereotypically associate with. You know, he's kind of he's very well dressed. You know, the way he speaks, mm. you know, comes off as a bit. Uh, I don't want to say dandyish, but just you know. Just very, you know, he's like, you know, I live for the theater. The theater's my life, you know. <laughs> Just almost, you know, a bit too dramatic for, <laughs> you know. It's like, dude, you're just a, a critic, you know. <laughs> uh, take it down a notch. Um, and, you know, him running around with these these beautiful women, you know, whether it's Marilyn Monroe's character where it, you know, it makes him look good at, you know, these get togethers with, with people who are in the industry 
and and everything it it, it makes him look good um but you know it's like was he was he just you know telling her that he could possibly help her career so that she would hang out with him so she could almost be like you know his beard uh you know um it's an interesting way of looking at things uh but you know again this is this is code era so we'll never really know um but you could kind of look at it that way i think um and i think there would be an argument there uh but yeah yeah he's just he is definitely someone that he has he has been in you know the industry uh you know the theater industry for long enough that you know he he knows you know he he is he is birdie but you know not at the service of of someone else other than just the theater as a whole. Uh, but he's obviously been around long enough that he can see through people's bullshit <laughs> and <laughs> he sees through Eve and is able to pick out, you know, the, her inaccuracies in her, in her stories. Um, and uses that to, to his advantage at the, at the end of the day. So, um, but yeah, he's just, he's a, He's a bit of a, a slimy, slimy character, and also the kind of unintended hero too. Mm. Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that scene where where Eve is crying in uh, on the bed and stuff. I mean, that was I would like rewatch that scene multiple times because I just love how he unmasks her. I mean, that was so epic. Yeah. <laughs> for sure i mean and as much as george i think tends to play very seedy oily and downright evil people he's Khan. exactly <laughs> you can't but love that rich deep voice uh that our Shere khan has us i you yeah. know jungle book has its problems and obviously this is not the time and place to discuss jungle book but Shere khan is one of the better parts of that film and uh, just because George Sanders just get, lends his voice to this villain and he does such a great job of it. And it's beautiful to listen to, at least for me. And I envy, have envied George Sanders's voice ever since I heard the Shere Khan. And I'm assuming that as a theater critic, like you were saying, Rachel, he's seen stars come and go and has probably seen other Eves in his time. Hence why he probably is onto her so quickly. Yet... At the same time, as much as he knows what is going on, he has no qualms in helping her while taking Margot down in the process and will probably end up doing the same thing to Eve, as we see, and we'll talk about this, when Phoebe comes along at movie's end. And I don't know whether he simply delights in having that kind of influence and being instrumental in causing one person's star to grow brighter while suffocating the light out of another, or... He's almost like Heath Ledger's Joker, so almost an agent of chaos and just enjoys watching the world burn because he has that power, which we see the theater world burn is just like his. He, it was very reminiscent of the character he plays in Rebecca, Jack Favell, who because he thrives on that blackmail and seems to take pleasure in that. 
And I suppose he somewhat does give Eve a taste of her own medicine when he turns the tables on her. And I was like, yes, give it to her, man. Because I was just, I, I really, that's one of my favorite parts of the film is literally when he confronts her and kind of says, your name is not Eve Harrington. There's no such theater in the sh- as the Schubert in California and oh, in Las Vegas. Like, I can't recall now, but it was, it was fantastic. And, and obviously he knows the power that his pen has when it comes to making or breaking a star. And he uses every iota of that when you get to get what he wants, which is why he did remind me somewhat of the food critic in the Ratatouille for that reason. I wonder whether maybe that critic was maybe somewhat based on this character. I guess we'll, uh, we'll never know, but uh, it, it did definitely make me think of him. So let's get to our villain in this picture and the master manipulator and Baxter, of course, is Eve Harrington, whom, of course, would then appear in the Ten Commandments, I Confess, The Magnificent Ambersons, and much more. So, Rachel, starting here with you, what did you make of our, shall we say, villain in this picture? She is, it's, it's so wild, the twists and turns that this this movie takes. Mm. Um it's fascinating when you dive into the, the the history, you know, the the you know short story or whatever that this was based on, whatever you want to call it, because it was only like three and a half pages long. Mm-hmm. Um, appeared in Cosmopolitan magazine. Um, uh, that you know she's based on supposedly this real life woman who kind of you know weaseled her way into a uh, uh, celebrity's life and kind of took over and um the copy of the dvd i had that i got from the library was two discs so the second disc had all the special features and one of the special features even included some audio of the um the the woman that the story was supposedly written about meeting the I think the woman that wrote it hmm. maybe um, so and just to hear her talk about it, and you know she, uh, and you know deny that she did all these things is quite fascinating to to hear that audio recording just these two women just snipping at each other because obviously you know they each have their own idea of what actually happened <laughs> so, so this character basically confronts mary all about uh the what she wrote yeah yeah hmm. something like that uh i only watched it once um so but yeah if you if you get the the two disc uh dvd you can you can watch that that special feature and listen to that um but uh, you know, for her to, it, it, we'll get more into this when we talk about how the movie ends. But just to see her come in and be this, you know, bright-eyed, supposedly you know, small-town gal who you know has, uh, you know, comes from, uh, you know. Far, family of, of farmers, you know, blue collar life, and you know she married young, and then she lost her husband in in the war, so she's this young widow um, at, at such a young age, and 
you know, she doesn't have any friends or anything. So she's just going to the theater and watching this, this actress that she admires so much is, you know, all, all she really has to live for. She's like, if I wasn't at the theater, I'd have nothing else to do. Um, she, she knows exactly how to pull on the, the heartstrings and start her manipulations right from the very beginning. But you don't necessarily, it's so easy. Some of the things she does early on to justify as, you know, she's just doing her job and doing a real good job of it. Like, you know, when she schedules the phone call to, to bill at, you know, for them, you know, for, for Margo, it's three in the morning. Um, and you know, you're looking at it later. It's like, Oh, you know, obviously that interrupts Margo's sleep and you know, all of those things. Uh, but at the time you're like, Oh, she just wanted to make sure that she was able to wish Bill a happy birthday as soon as it was his birthday on the mm-hmm. West coast. Like, Oh, isn't that sweet? Cause you know, Margo is, See, you know, presumably forgotten about it because she doesn't even realize what it is that Bill is insinuating. He's like, "Are you gonna say it? Are you gonna sing it?" And she's like, "Uh, she, yeah, she's half asleep." She's like, "Ah, oh, no." She's like, "Oh, it's your birthday. <laughs> like you forgot?" <laughs> or it's like, "Oh, good girlfriend, you are." Um, it's like you forgot? You called me. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So. Things like that, it's like, it's really easy to justify and be like, oh, you know, that was really smart of of Eve to think that far ahead, you know, to call and have the, the schedule, you know, the call scheduled, which I didn't even know you that's a thing you could do uh, <laughs> with landlines like that. Um, and it's like, oh, you know, she's just a, re- you know, she's seemingly knows what Margot needs before Margot even knows she needs it. Right. And it's like, you know, this this gal, she was just made to be a, a personal assistant or, you know, whatever you want to call her. Um, but, yeah, about the time you get to her being like, uh, you know, it's like, oh, I heard that Margot's understudy is going to have to go on maternity leave. And she's like, I, you know, I don't want to presume anything, but you know, I do know the part. So you wouldn't have to train anybody or anything. She makes it sound really logical. And it's like, that's when you're like, "Ah, hold on a minute there, Sherlock. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I don't know how she figures out what Karen did with the gas. In the car, how she how she figured that out? Um, I, I think know. Karen talked to Eve about being in the right place at the right time. Like, hey, I'll make sure she's not here if you make sure you're there. Oh, okay, yeah. I think oh, they right. were in cahoots on that one. Yeah, okay. It wasn't quite putting two and two together and make four. Um, and I I think it's hilarious. And obviously Karen did too, because she ends up burst out, bursting out laughing when they're at the, at the, the, the club that, you know, we have this scene between Eve and Karen where she's essentially blackmailing Karen. You know, she's like, you know, I know that the, the role of Cora in this, in this play 
really should go to someone younger like me. You know, it's a really good part. And Margot would just be so upset if she found out that you're the reason that she missed that performance mm-hmm. and that you would, you know, finagled with the gas and the car and everything. And she's got Karen backed into this corner like, oh, crap. You know, like, okay, now I've got to figure out some way to talk to Lloyd and put a spin on this to make it, you know, (laughs) make sense. And then she gets back to the table and Margo's like, I don't want to play Cora. And she's like, I'm off the hook. (laughs) It's so wild that, that Eve has done all of this manipulating and everything and resorted to blackmail. And then it doesn't matter. True. <laughs> <laughs> and in turn, it ends up biting her in the butt because uh, Addison has figured out all of her secrets and now is holding that over her head. So she still gets what she wants, the role of Cora, and you know gets this fancy award and everything. Yet at the end of the day, Addison's going to be pulling the strings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like the the karma does not take very long to to come around to bite people in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's quite and, amusing. Yeah, and Rachel, you had actually pointed out the possible theory of the fact of of um, Addison possibly being a closeted homosexual. I know there were rumors circling the fact that Eve might have been a closeted lesbian. I mean, did you buy that at all? I I, I don't know if. I don't know, you know, the, when she has her, you know, presumably housemate, I guess, is the best way to put her, you know, the, the gal that calls um, the, the Richard's house and, uh, you know, it talks about, oh, you know, she's, she's so upset, she's, you know, she's making herself ill and I don't know what to do and all of these things. Um, and, and Lloyd is finally like, I'll be right there, you know, and she hangs up and Eve is right there and, you know, with this smirk on his face, on her face and they go up, you know, back upstairs to their respective rooms, you know, kind of arm in arm. I can see where people maybe read into that and that and her, you know, like when, uh, Margo at the end of the party, you know, she's so drunk and she's like, I'm going to go to bed and, mm. and Bill's all like, you know, do you want me to tuck you in? And she's like, you know, she goes off, uh, you know, like, Oh, you know, help me get out of this dress and put on my pajamas and all of that. She's like, e- you know, Eve would enjoy that. And he's like, yeah, whatever you want. <laughs> and she, you know, her eyes, eyes light up like, Oh yeah, I love the idea of helping you get undressed and get into bed. And, tucking mm-hmm. you in into sleep so i could kind of i could kind of see that but i don't know if that necessarily means she's a lesbian she could be bisexual maybe mm-hmm. or maybe she just doesn't care if it gets her what she wants right so but she's prepared basically to do anything necessary to get to a final goal is basically what you're right. saying right yeah which yeah if that that could be uh, yeah, for her to just be willing to do whatever for the sake of achieving her goals that in itself is just you know obviously 
evil and uh, manipulative and and you know disgusting. Um, the fact that she may be somebody like that that maybe is LGBT, you know, on that in in that classification. Honestly, I think maybe that would make it worse. Because I, I think that I think that would I think that would be harmful to. Uh, it's a bad commentary on the. Yeah, it's a bad community. commentary on 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 people like that. So. Very much so. Yes. No. I mean, of course, it would throw tremendous shade on that, indeed. And Zan, what were your thoughts on on Eve Harrington? Eve Harrington is one of film's greatest examples of a pure sociopath. <laughs> She's she just her her main talent. I mean, of course, we never. You know, very much like uh, Vicky Lester in Star is Born. We don't necessarily see her acts all that much, but what she's really good at is knowing what people want to hear. And that's what she can do. And she's definitely, you know, out for herself. And she's extremely delusional. You know, like I said, when she was telling that story to Addison about how Lloyd is complaining about Karen. He wants to leave her and we're going to get married. And he's like, yeah, that's kind of not the impression I got like at lunch with the two of them today. Like, you know, I kind of bought it for a minute because I don't trust Lloyd, but I, you know, she's, she's one of those people that you, like I said, can be very, very frightening. Like the, this person said hi to me. Therefore that's my boyfriend now. Like that kind of a, that kind of a sociopath person. Um, it's all in her talent. You know, all of her talent is knowing what to say to get people to feel sorry for her and then listen to her and then how to be in the right place at the right time, how to pick the right allies, who to go for, who to stay away from, you know, because she stays the hell away from Thelma Ritter. I mean, she knows she's not going to win her over. She's, she's too onto her. She's way too smart. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I kind of love that what's going to happen to her is just essentially her own medicine. She's, she's going to get a taste of her own medicine and that's going to be her downfall. And, you know, we're going to see, you know, the sequel to this movie is going to be, um, you know, <laughs> coming soon, singing in the rain, starring Phoebe, you know, <laughs> yes. it's going to be, it's, it's going to be exactly what Eve was trying to do. But, and, and it makes you wonder about the Phoebe character. Like, is she really in high school in Brooklyn? I don't know. Cause that's the thing about, about Eve is I, I didn't trust her from the very beginning. Cause they were like, don't you have a family or a home? No, I don't. Okay, so you're homeless, but you're able to go to a Broadway show every night. Okay, explain that part to me. Like, are you second acting it? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> how are you How are you affording this if you have nowhere to go, nothing to do, no means of supporting yourself, but you're able to just see a Broadway show every day? Okay, whatever. So there was always something off to me about her even before we found out there was something off about her. Um, and just how she's ready to usurp everybody you know not just in everything not just margot's career but margot's boyfriend and if she can't get margot's boyfriend she's going to get karen's boyfriend <laughs> and if she's just who i mean she also kind of usurps marilyn monroe a little bit 
Mm-hmm. You know, it just doesn't matter who gets knocked down on her rise to the top. She's going to do it. And of course she gets found out because it's nothing but a house of cards and she's just a liar and she's a sociopath. And, and I love when Addison tells her that her story about Eddie is an insult to our servicemen. I thought that was great. <laughs> it's like, you're making up a story about a, you know, about your dead husband from the war. And this country is full of widows who don't have husbands anymore. And you're basically insulting them by pretending to be one of them to get further ahead in whatever your sociopathic endeavor of the week is <laughs> for this. So as much as you guys know that I love come up in stories, I feel mm-hmm. like her comeuppance is a little bit ambiguous. Right. And you can, you can imagine what's going on. You know, when she gets her reward and she says, she's giving her speech and she says, and although I am off to Hollywood to make a film, I kind of got the idea that she's off to Hollywood to make a film with like maybe William Castle. (laughs) 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 Not going to be a good movie. (laughs) This is, this is um like it's not a Cecil B. DeMille picture. <laughs> no, this is this is like Shelley Long leaving Cheers to have a movie career and then making Troop Beverly Hills and Hello Again. Um <laughs> nothing against Shelley Long. She's done some wonderful stuff, but you know, or let or let's talk about the movie career that David Caruso was going to do after he left NYPD Blue. And mm-hmm. uh <laughs> I don't know what that whatever happened to that movie career, but I don't I don't remember seeing it any, any recently. So I get I sort of get the feeling that she like I said you can you can we we've talked about how you can take the the character of Addison a couple of different ways that he is a closeted homosexual, but part of me doesn't think so because of his whole like you know, you're going to do what I say. And is it just, is it just his goal to like ruin her now? Or it just seems like there's more to his wanting to control her. than I think there, there really did feel like there was a creepy sexual aspect to that. Um, I could be, I could be reading it wrong, but I felt like there was a, there was something just kind of a creeper part of that. But, um, so I get the feeling like she's almost ready to get drummed out of Broadway. Like she knows that she's probably not. She's like, I, I, but I'll be back and I won't forget you. And it's like, ah, what if they forget you? What if you go and you make a really crappy movie and then nobody wants you on Broadway either? You know, you, mm-hmm. you sort of get the feeling that there's about 10 different ways where she can get her full comeuppance. And her going to Hollywood is one of them. Phoebe is another one. Addison is another one. And I think that when Addison tells, you know, based on that kiss we saw at the end, like I said, it could be a, you know, you know, this, our marriage, our marriage counselor has helped us, darling. I still love you kiss between (laughs) Karen and Lloyd. I think once, you know, once Addison did tell Lloyd and Karen, like, Hey, here's what she told me the other day that she doesn't even have, she's probably not going to have Lloyd in her camp for much longer either. So um, I did like the aspect of that. And as, as for the theory of her being, her being a lesbian, I feel like she's more of a, 
evil Captain Hart, Captain Jack Harkness. She's she's mm. pansexual because whatever she can use to get what she wants, she's going to do. Um, she's almost. I I sort of saw her as as a person, sort of asexual, because oh. she's just kind of out for number one. She's not interested in. It almost feels like she's more interested in taking Karen's husband than she is in having Lloyd to herself. True. So she strikes me as more of an asexual person who will sleep with anybody if it gets her if it gets her what she needs. Mm, yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, because all I really saw was a conniving, clever, and incredibly manipulative woman who will stop at nothing and do whatever it takes to make it to the top, no matter how many people she has to screw over literally and figuratively to do so. I mean, what I thought was incredibly powerful about this film is that even though she's supposed to be the main character or villain in this, she's barely in the movie. And it is is very much the Betty Davis show, if you like. Yet even when she's not on screen, you very much feel her presence as it was very much like Rebecca, where you could very much feel her presence just by the way folks talked about her, where they literally repeat a few times, it's all about Eve. And and I suppose this villain does get her comeuppance, like you were saying, Dan, as well as when she, you know, literally becomes the next Margot Channing and her Eve has literally walked into her life, i.e. Phoebe. So it, she was very, she was a, a wonderful villain and, oh, you know, definitely, um, incredibly well played and i don't really buy maybe the the lesbian thing as well i just think it's just like like you were saying it's almost means to an end as if you have to sleep with whoever to get to the top she'll do it which is that's why how driven she is to reach her ultimate goal so i definitely think it's more of that for sure and this of course brings us neatly to how this film ends with the appearance of barbara bates as phoebe who's uh, already imagining herself uh, in all the bright clothes and winning all the awards and what have you so starting here with you actually zan were you satisfied with how all about eve ended I, I really liked the ending of this movie because like I said before, it, it's, it shows you that this is a cycle that's never going to end. Mm. You're, you know, as long as we have a culture of hero worship, you're going to have people breaking into your hotel room. You're going to have people lying just to be closer to you. You know, she, you know, she lies and says, Oh, she asked me, she's having a nap. She asked me to, to answer the door, thanks, bye, I'll take that take that award. I mean, if she left that in a taxi cab, who's to say that Phoebe doesn't just leave while she's sleeping and take that award with her? Exactly. And and I love how Phoebe does the same thing, the exact same thing Eve does, where she pretends to put on the clothes and she stands in front of the mirror and acts like she's Eve, the way Eve acted like she was Margot. And like I said, Phoebe almost seems more dangerous that the the hero worship and the stalking gets more dangerous as it goes on. You know, that if we saw this go down the road, you know, what is the Phoebe person going is who's Phoebe's stalker going to be doing? Is she going to be breaking into Phoebe's house right. and not just the hotel room? Just this idea of the fact that some kid and again, because we know that Eve is full of it, maybe Phoebe's full of it, too saying that she's president of the fan club in her high school in Brooklyn. Is she actually in high school? I don't know. I mean, 
it's the fifties. People looked like thirty year olds when they were in high school. In the 50s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you don't quite know what is going on with this situation. And how does she find out what hotel room she's in and what hotel she's in in the first place? And, you know, what's going on with the security in this hotel that the maid turns her back for 10 seconds and some kid is able to break into a room? I mean, it's very, very frightening what's going on. And you get the idea that Eve has become exactly like Margot in the sense that her ego is not letting her see the warning signs that mm. there's some really dangerous stuff going on, you know, and Eve's a bad person. You know, Margot, Margot might be late sometimes and she can be a little bit of a, of an egocentric type, but she's not a bad person. She's not a dangerous person. She's not telling lies about who she is. Whereas Eve is on a house of cards. Like mm -hmm. I said, she's already she's already on a house of cards. It's about to fall. She needs to be way more on her game. The fact that she is buying into her own ego and buying into her own rhetoric of how great she is and buying into the fact, buying into the lie that she got what she got because she's good, not because she's conniving. She needs to be way more on the ball with that. She can't she shouldn't be seeing Phoebe in her room and thinking, oh, isn't this cute? Some high school girl. She should be looking at Phoebe going, all right, sister, I know this game. I perfected it. You need to get the hell out or I'm going to call the cops. <laughs> but the fact that she doesn't is, like I said, when we first started talking about this, a very interesting commentary on actors and acting and the confidence and ego that you have to have to be an actor but you also have to be on your guard about it because of the dangers of hero worship and how fandom can go too far and how people can really believe that they, because they love you, you have to love them back or that they are entitled to a piece of you. Mm. So the idea that this movie ends right where it started, but in much more dangerous way is terrifying and fascinating and satisfying because you're kind of glad that Eve's going to get what's coming to her. And if somebody you serve, you know, the, the thing is, I, like I said, I believe Eve being a sociopath is not capable of love. So I don't think anybody's going to steal a boyfriend or a girlfriend away from her, but I do feel like somebody is going to single white female, her ass back to <laughs> the brewery. Yes, we'll probably see her once again back at the brewery for sure. And and Rachel, were you happy with the with the ending of this film? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's <laughs> just that with each generation, you know, it's uh, the the cycle can't can't seem to to uh, be be broken. The the fame machine um, and. Yeah, I, just based on Addison's reaction when Phoebe answers the door and, you know, how he was able to see through Eve's, you know, lies and, and bullshit so easily, um, the, 
the comment that he makes to to Phoebe about you know ask ask her how to win one of these. Um, I think he's. I think he. I think Phoebe is not all she claims to be, and he's see mm-hmm. and he's picking up on that. Um, but he doesn't necessarily seem concerned about it. Maybe there. Maybe there's a part of him that's getting some. Uh, you know, wants to see how this plays out, and uh, you know, Eve will get. You know, karma. More karma. To come bite her in the butt with this this new girl, he's got like some uh, some extreme like Schadenfreude. Uh, <laughs> Waiting oh, yeah. to see what's gonna yeah to see what's gonna happen here with this 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 next you know new fresh face in town. So um, it, it's interesting again, you know, this being the the era of 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 code that. Um, I guess because technically nobody broke any laws that Eve doesn't have to get what's coming to her. Mm-hmm. Usually, when we see with you know people, bad people essentially in True. in film, you know, as far as code is concerned, you know, it's like if someone you know breaks a law, they're supposed to be brought to justice, but. I guess technically nobody she didn't break any laws, so she's just kind of nuts. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> other than you know, using a fake name, but I mean, that's not technically against the law. I mean, everybody's legally allowed an alias, so <laughs> she didn't steal an identity or anything like that. She didn't like murder yeah, she, Eve Harrington to take her name or anything. She's yeah, made it up. Yeah, so it's it's. Um, just how ambiguous it is at the end of just you could assume that just the cycle is going to continue but yeah just like Zam was saying it's like just how bad is this going to get before someone stands up and is like wait a minute you know before somebody (laughs) listens to Thelma Ritter yes exactly Yeah, it's 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 very true. Um, I and I'm I'm right with there with you both. I love the ending of this film, and uh, and yeah, and I do think it's just going to get darker and darker and darker if you allow it to progress, and possibly you know maybe crimes will be committed to the point of where you know either you have young starlets breaking into uh, you know the current star's house, or even murder, or Lord knows what happens. But it was absolutely fantastic, and I was so satisfied with this because. You get a, you, I think you get a full story, and you know where where this is going to go. So I was absolutely, absolutely love this, and so definitely kudos to um to to everybody in this film for sure because it was just it was just so well done. And Mankiewicz did a fantastic job of directing it from start to finish, and the writing was just so crisp, so fanta- fabulous, fabulous ending indeed. So let's get to our if we were the Academy segment. This film, of course, won Best Picture during the 23rd Academy Awards, held at the RKO Pantages Theatre in Hollywood on March the 29th of 1951. Your host for the night was Mr. Fred Astaire, and presenting the award for Best Picture was Ralph Bunch. This film was running up against four other movies, Born Yesterday, Father of the Bride, King Solomon's Minds, and one of Zan's favorites, of course, Sunset Boulevard. So, Rachel, starting here with you, does All About Eve deserve the gold standard compared to its uh, fellow nominees, or is it at least Oscar worthy? Uh, It's definitely deserving of the nomination. Mm. Um, As much as I really like this story, 
it's right. like I said, it's really, really well written. Um, yeah, obviously, talent runs in the Mankiewicz family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for better or for worse, I think uh, yeah, Joseph here, uh, I think maybe benefited a little from his older brother's untimely death. Mm. Um, you know, to not have to compete with him. Uh, you know, as as time goes on, um, the the cast and this is great. You know, everybody is just you know just does so well in their roles um it's it I, obviously with the you know sheer amount of nominations that this movie got i mean it broke the record for most nominations with 14 it, it broke on with the wins record previous record mm-hmm. of 13 nominations um it had five acting nominations four of those were for women uh, you know, we had two in the best, you know, in the lead actress and then two in the, you know, supporting actress. But uh, unfortunately that, um, I think split the vote. So none of them walked away with the, the <laughs> none of the actresses walked walk away with any awards. Um, but, uh, I, think if it was me if mm-hmm. i had to if i had any say in the matter i would think that sunset boulevard ekes ahead um, just because because like it, it's really funny just how similar like some of the plot points and the themes yeah are to this movie but i think sunset boulevard ekes ahead for the cinematography Yes. I think it's a better shot movie. It's more visually interesting with some of the shots um, and some of the editing that is not used in this. The, 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 a lot of the shots are just very, you know, your standard two-person coverage, mm-hmm. a close-up, you know, maybe a wide shot of, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know people at a party or something like that. Um other than the shot at the very end with Phoebe in the mirror, um, that's probably like the most visually interesting shot, but it's only one out of an entire movie. Um, and uh, I think Sunset Boulevard is just more visually interesting while telling a very similar story um, with very similar things. So I think just because of the visual interest on top of just a very good story with very good actors doing amazing things. You know, I think Gloria Swanson as Norma Desmond is just, ugh, you know, that's just like over the top. And of course we get the famous, the famous quote, I'm ready for my close up. Yeah. I mean, just, she's just so campy and over the top, but I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, throw that with just, like I said, the cinematography and everything. I think just Sunset Boulevard just ekes ahead mm. of this as far as what should have won this picture. Oh, wow. Well, we, well, I mean, that's the genius of Billy Wilder once again, for sure. Yes. <laughs> and and Zan, when it comes to you, I know you have a dog in the fight. So it seems like you and <laughs> Rachel might be, you know, in simpatico once again. What do you think? I mean, does does All About Eve deserve the best picture this year? This is a great movie. This deserves an Oscar nomination. 
I think everybody who was up for acting awards should have gotten them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a tough one. I'm, I, you know, I love Celeste Holm, but I, I would have loved to have seen Thelma Ritter take home an Oscar for this because she never did. And I love her. Uh, Betty Davis definitely was certainly qualified. Even Ann Baxter certainly qualified to win an Oscar for this. Um, but exactly everything Rachel said, This the best movie out of all of these five movies is Sunset Boulevard. It is more visually interesting. So even if we'd had All About Eve win as Best Picture, but at least Billy Wilder get Best Director, I would have liked to have seen that a little bit better. It is a very similar concept of the aging actress and how that can manifest. Either she can let someone take advantage of her or she can go completely and completely crazy. But it's the same concept. And I love that we're talking about that in 1950. I feel like Sunset Boulevard, though, was a little bit more relevant Mm -hmm. to the time because Gloria Swanson was actually 50 when she made that movie. And what was happening to her was happening to a lot of people, as you see in the Sunset Boulevard scene where she has all of her friends over to play cards and they are all old, very famous. The waxworks. (laughs) The waxworks, yes. They are all very famous, but very unemployed silent film actors. So the fact that it was examining this concept of old Hollywood and current Hollywood and how they just cannot meet in the middle, but having Billy Wilder saying, Oh, but yes, they can look what I'm going to do with Gloria Swanson. (laughs) I felt like it was a little bit more relevant. And I feel like as a story, it has you on the edge of your seat a little bit more, even though you come into it knowing William Holden is going to be dead by the time we're done. Mm -hmm. Except for him. He he literally (laughs) has a look of surprise on his face when he's floating in the pool. (laughs) Yeah. He's he's got that look of, uh, that look of like, I can't believe she actually killed me. I I didn't think she'd had it in her, but whatever. Okay. Um, Just the way this movie used older actors and older directors with, Eric von Stroheim and Gloria Swanson. And again, like the wax, like I said, the wax works. Um, again, this was, I, I saw Sunset Boulevard when I was in my silent film phase in high school and just absolutely loved seeing Buster Keaton show up on screen. It's a, I, I do think that Sunset Boulevard, I wouldn't say it ekes out. I'd say Sunset Boulevard is definitely the better movie. Hmm. But they're both really, really good. That's like saying, what's the best ice cream? <laughs> you know, <they're laughs> these are extremely, extremely good movies. But I think Billy Wilder is a better director. I think the story is a little bit better. And being a David Lynch fan and a Twin Peaks fan, the fact that this is the movie where Gordon Cole comes from, got a little bit of a soft spot. I got a little bit of a soft spot for it. It has a special place in my heart. But <laughs> I definitely I definitely would have loved to have seen some acting awards go to more people besides... And it's a tough one. 
it's a tough one when you have two of your best actress nominees as being from this movie and then you have two of your best supporting actress nominees being from this movie who do you pick it's tough um george saunders excellent if you were to you know, and, and again, everybody in this movie was a supporting actor. This was an extremely collaborative story. Um, the, you know, as as much as I love Eric von Stroheim, he's a director. You know, he's not <laughs> he's not an actor. So if he hadn't been nominated for this, and the fact that he didn't win over George Sanders makes sense to me. Um, but. You know, I do, but at least both of these movies, you know, I always, I always say that I feel like the screenplay award is sort of the consolation prize of, we know you made an excellent movie, but the public is just not ready for you yet, <laughs> kind of award. <laughs> the fact that both of these movies won a screenplay award, that there's best screenplay for all about even best story and screenplay went to Sunset Boulevard. That lets you know that that this was a year of two absolutely, absolutely fantastic movies. But I still, I'm I'm gonna vote for Sunset Boulevard over this one. I'll die on that hill. <laughs> well, I expected no less from you, Zan. You know, once again, saying, mentioning, of course, uh, David Lynch and uh, this being such a big movie for him, and of course, it inspired Mulholland Drive and what have you. So, right. so I, I mean, I, I can definitely see that. I think all you know the the movies that we got as nominees. I loved Born Yesterday, and it shows another side of Broderick Crawford once again. He does a great job in that, and I really enjoyed the whole premise of that story. Father of the Bride. I now absolutely prefer Spencer Tracy's depiction of the dad compared to Steve Martin in the remake. I'm just saying that's my opinion, but I really enjoyed Father of the Bride very much. King Solomon's Minds, I don't think, had any business being a, a nominee. Yes. Why is that in this category? I don't get it. Yeah, because there were tons of other films made about Alan Quatermain, which are way better than this. And I will not get why King Solomon's Minds was in this. was probably the one that I, I, I as I said, it's my opinion, had no business being among the nominees. But Born Yes and Father Bride are fantastic, fantastic movies. Sunset Boulevard is amazing. And... I, I'm still torn to this day. I guess it's, it depends what day of the week you ask me, because some days I might actually give it to All About Even, other days I'll give it to Sunset Boulevard, because you, you have fantastic performances from Gloria Swanson and Betty Davis, and it's just so, so hard to say which is best. But I, I think today, uh, today I'd probably give it to Sunset Boulevard because of just loving the noir perspective and almost the creepy vibes that you get behind that, because I, I have to be honest, I'm a sucker for, for noir films, and uh, and that and and that kind of atmosphere and Billy Wilder just excels with this film. We'd seen I would almost have given it given the the best picture to this rather than the Lost Weekend. And I think they maybe gave it to the wrong movie if you when it came to the Billy Wilder picture to give it to. And this might have been the right one rather than Sunset than uh, than the Lost Weekend. Yeah. So today I'm definitely going to say Sunset Boulevard. I'm right there with with you two for sure. So let's get to ratings then. Zan, what do you give All About Eve out of 10? This gets a 9 out of 10 for me. Mm. Um, for all of the factors we've already talked about, that it's a, that, you know, for 1950 to have a story about women that isn't a exploitation film or a novelty. I mean, not, I'm not trying to say anything against 
the movie The Women, because I love it, but it was kind of a novelty and it was marketed and billed as such. I think was I think was wonderful. And to have something really make you think about, like I said, worship and ego and fandom and how we view someone's value as they age. I think more people should really be watching this movie and actually thinking about that kind of stuff. That, you know, why are we tossing out, why do we have a, an expiration date on women where we don't seem to have the same expiration date on men? Where is that coming from? How did we, how did we get there? Who brainwashed us into thinking that and how do we fix it? <laughs> so this is definitely very high rated for me. Well, very well said. And I'm actually glad that in certain respects, things have changed slightly because, you know, look at Meryl Streep, for example, you know, for, and, you know so I hope so glad, hopefully, you know, there will be more Meryl Streep. Francis McDormand. Exactly. Francis McDormand. Yeah. And she's she's fantastic. She's older. And she went to the Oscars with basically bedhead. She D.A.G.F., you guys. I love her for that. <laughs> her More and Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao rocking the uh, sneakers with her, <laughs> you know, floor length. You know what? Dress. I got this gorgeous yes, dress, but let me throw on my sneakers and just put the hair in braids. I don't even care. Let's just yeah. get out. Let's get out the door. <laughs> yeah, I I absolutely love that. And Rachel, the the crowd holds its breath when it comes to you. So when it comes to this film, what do you give it out of ten? Uh, well, yeah, like I said, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie it is it's so well written it's so well acted um like i said it's not the most visually interesting story uh you know as far as cinematography is concerned but uh you know if 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 sunset boulevard had not come out the same year then i probably may not be complaining about that as much <laughs> you were really uh, onto something there about that about that shot where you see phoebe in the mirror I was like, oh, last five minutes of the movie, we finally figure out some cinematography. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, no, this is just a, this is just an overall good, solid uh, uh, movie. Um, I can see why it's on the, the AFI top 100 list. It, it, I think it definitely deserves to be there. I think Sunset Boulevard's on there too. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> not sure where they are as, as far as rankings, which one's above the other. Um, but uh, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. You know, if I, if it happened to be on TV and I had nothing better to do, I'd probably, you know, I'd watch it. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, and yay for dresses with pockets. So, uh, that automatically, you and and Edith head now have something in common, which is fantastic. Automatically gives it just a few more extra, you know, percentage points, uh, for, for Edith head thinking ahead and putting pockets in, in a cocktail dress. (laughs) She's such a genius. By the way, Rachel, all about Eve is number twenty-eight on the AFI list, uh-huh. and Sunset Boulevard's number sixteen. So we're right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I give this a good. It's a good solid eight. Fantastic. I'm actually going to give this also a nine out of ten as I thoroughly enjoyed this film. It made me want to explore more of Betty Davis's filmography. It's so well written and so well directed. Granted, as as you were both pointing out, Sunset Boulevard. 
is maybe a, a couple of steps above this, but it was just fanta- a fantastic, fantastic sh- uh, film. And what a way to kick off the, the 50s for sure. So it's 9 out of 10 for me. So, of course, we talked about this film and dissected it. And should you folks wish to join us on one of our discussions or share your thoughts on the films we discuss here, you can do so by shooting us an email at goldstandardoscars at gmail.com. Feel free to follow us on Twitter, where you can find us as Oscars Gold, or on Facebook, where you can find us as Gold Standard, the Oscars podcast. We love hearing from you guys, and we also appreciate the following support. Also, if you'd like to hear us discuss your favorite Oscar nominee, like Sunset Boulevard, for example, or a film that you feel deserves to be part of the Golden Conversation, you can join our wonderful family of patrons on Patreon and check out the great tiers we have going on on there. Of course, you'll get to unlock our reviews of such films as Notorious, the OG Star Wars trilogy, Singing in the Rain, and many more. That's patreon.com slash Oscars. And of course, a big thank you to our wonderful patrons for their support indeed. So let's get to shameless self-promotion then. Rachel, when you're not here at the Gold Standard Theatre, where can folks find you? You can find me with the Five-ish Fangirls podcast. We are a... Weekly pop culture, geek culture, entertainment podcast where we talk about books, movies, TV shows, video games, all things geeky and nerdy from the female perspective. And we can be found uh, pretty much wherever you can find podcasts and the com, where you can connect with all of our social medias and our personal ones as well. Awesome. And Zan, what about you? Well, when I'm not in the gold standard theater, I'm in the drunk cinema theater with Charles Skaggs <laughs> discussing just the only the only common thread there is it's movies that we love and that are some of our favorites. Or we are under the sycamore tree in Ghostwood, the Twin Peaks podcast, where we talk all things tangentially Twin Peaks related, tangentially David Lynch related, and just anything that's wonderful and strange. Fabulous. And when it comes to me, I do host the Whiskey and Cigarettes show where we play today's country, traditional country and everything else in between. For more about that and where to tune in, you can visit our website. That's whiskeyandcigarettesshow.com. Podcast wise, if superhero movies are your speed, I also host the Happiness and Darkness podcast. We discuss all superhero movies under the sun. If you'd like to join me on there and discuss a superhero movie of your choice, feel free to shoot me an email at happinessanddarknesshow at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and the Instagram. Also, with the wonderful aforementioned Charles Skaggs, we just finished discussing The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and we will soon be moving on to Jupiter's Legacy as of next week. So definitely check that out for sure, an image comic-inspired TV show. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And speaking of things to come on this show, next time we'll be discussing the 1951 Minelli film, An American in Paris. So, Rachel and Zan, there's always a wonderful, wonderful time talking to you both, and what do you expect from our next movie? Rachel, I think the 50s are definitely looking up for you. Oh, yes. It's looking so wonderful. <laughs> and Zan, do you, uh, do you have any thoughts on American in Paris? Oh, this is going to be the Rachel show. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is totally fine with me. American Paris is a lovely, lovely movie. Exactly. This is definitely going to be a lot of fun for sure. And our next film in color since Gone with the Wind. So that's going to be a nice... Yay, color! (laughs) (laughs) Yes, since 1939, we haven't had color. So that's going to be an interesting one indeed. So much black and white. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) That said, folks, thanks as always for listening to the show and supporting us. We will see you next time with An American in Paris. Until then, enjoy those movies and keep that popcorn hot. 
Ciao, my people.